This teaching comes to you from the team at Anchor Church Sydney. We hope you're blessed by it. For more teachings, resources or info, check out our website www.anchorchurch.com.au Church, Matt here. Great to see you on this Sunday morning. So glad that you've decided to tune in to church online, whether you're watching from a church at home, house church, or whether you're watching from your living room by yourself with a small group of friends. We are so glad that you've chosen to join us today. Well, today we are launching a new series in the book of Psalms, that, that book that falls in the middle of your Bible and just flop your Bible open to the middle, to the middle you land in the book of Psalms. And the book of Psalms is a collection of about 150, or actually exactly 150 um, songs, hymns, poems uh, that were written over a period of 800 years by a whole bunch of different authors. Most were penned by David, although there were some written by other worship leaders amongst Israel, the sons of Korah, were a songwriting group that penned a number of the Psalms. And they reflected the worship of Israel over a, over a vast period of time, over a vast range of significant events. And the Psalms kind of have been collated together and arranged together very specifically. And they follow this kind of general movement from lament at the beginning in the first book of the Psalms, kind of heavy on lament. And then as we end the book of Psalms, it ends with this crescendo of praise and a call of hallelujah, praise the Lord. And uh, everything in between. Uh, Psalms has been described as a literary sanctuary or a virtual temple that draws people into the worship of God's people, it draws people into God's presence. And for the exiles who were away from the land, away from the temple, had no physical place to go to worship God, they were able to enter into and participate in temple worship um, kind of via proxy as they entered into the experience of the psalmist and the songwriters. And so the psalms call us to appropriate, to use them to draw near to God. And in the psalms, we encounter every single human emotion possibly known from fear to anger to rage to frustration to uh, confusion to lament and to praise and celebration and joy. It's all there. It's literally a collection of Uh, moments of life poured out before God. And Psalms is real, it's raw, it's vulnerable, and it's honest, and it's beautiful. And so why Psalms? Why now will we find ourselves in this cultural moment that we're in? It's kind of like the world has hit this global pause button. We're all kind of waiting for a vaccine, waiting for the virus to be over, waiting for life to kind of go back to some sense of normality. And It's led to a whole bunch of emotions and and responses from us, from boredom to frustration to challenge to opportunity to uh, anxiety. And the question is, how will we wait well in this season? So the Psalms gives us this rich canvas of spiritual experiences, all sorts of responses to circumstances of life that give us permission. The Psalms literally are God's words to us in order to pray back to him. They teach us to wait. They teach us to grieve and to lament. They teach us to pray. They teach us to have hope and to trust 
in God. And so we've called this series in the book of Psalms, Selah, Songs in the Waiting. Now that term Selah is, uh, well, we actually don't know what it means technically, but our best guess, um, scholars' best guess is that it means, it's a musical term that means to pause. And that feels quite apt when you come to Psalms. It's an invitation for us to pause, to slow down, to be still in the presence of God, to give attention. And the Psalms require us to slow down in order to listen to the voice of God because it's poetry. It has parallels, it has metaphors and similes. And like any good piece of art, it never reveals all of its secrets the first time round. It requires us to go back and to gaze upon and reread and slow down our pace so that we can unpack it and understand it. In fact, as we open the book of Psalms, Psalm chapter 1 tells us how to read the rest of the book. And there is this idea that we ought to be meditating on the word. It's a call to read slowly. And so what we've wanted to do with the book of Psalms is recognizing the crazy pace of life that we live in is we've encouraged every single one of you to get a copy of John Mark Comer's book, The Ruthless Elimination of Hurry, in order to help us um, learn what it looks like to live at a slower pace, to give our best time and attention to God. And so our hope is as we walk through this series, as we dive into the book of Psalms, that you will begin to appropriate these words for yourself, that you will sing them and pray them and lament them and, and use them to grieve and cry out to God in your pain and your anguish or use them to celebrate and praise God wherever you find yourself at, that God has given us language to pray back to Him. And that as we do that, we get to experience His love and experience His presence. So, as we dive into the book of Psalms, let me pray for us. Please join me as I pray. Father God, we thank you that your word is living and active. God, we want to come with great expectation around this series, that you want to speak to us. You want to draw us in to worship, to experience your presence. We thank you that you've given us language that reflects the whole range of human experience in order that we could pray back to you in worship. So we, we ask now, God, speak to us across every living room and home and house church that is watching. Pray that by the power of your spirit, you'd be transforming lives. And we pray this in Jesus' powerful name. Amen. Well, I wonder if you ever think to yourself, man, I, I just don't know if I'm crushing it at life. Like I, I, I think I'm failing. And if I'm not failing, I'm certainly not winning. I don't know if you feel that at all. We had this experience just last week where um, I, I'd just been feeling a bit demotivated, unmotivated in this season, a bit flat. We'd had a, a bad run of sickness with the kids being at home a lot and trying to juggle working from home and, and running the run, you know, looking after the kids is a little bit crazy. And so Tash decided to cheer me up by organizing a date night. So she organized a babysitter. We planned this date night. And in our busyness, we didn't make a booking anywhere. So we got to Friday evening, we rushed out the door, we went to our favorite restaurant, we got there and they said, oh, we're really sorry, we're full, but you could wait for about 30 minutes for a seat. And in my impatience, I said, we're not waiting, let's jump back in the car, we're going to King Street, we'll just find a place to eat. Surely there's lots of places. And we walked up and down the length of King Street twice and there was nowhere, no bookings at, at any of the good restaurants like other than maybe you know, some dodgy takeaway restaurant that was that was available. But we ended up settling on 
a very busy, very average Thai restaurant where we had Thai food. And we sat at the table and just both felt so defeated. It's like, what, why, this was supposed to be such a good night. And then we ate our Thai in disappointment and went home and we woke up the next morning to a flurry of text messages to say, did you hear there was a Corona case at a Thai restaurant in King Street in Newtown? And we just had one of those moments where like, oh, if we just booked a restaurant, like what are we doing? It wasn't that hard. And I don't know if you feel like that. You think, you know what, I am, life just feels like I'm not killing, I'm not crushing, I feel like I'm failing. Perhaps you're a parent, you're thinking, my discipline strategies are not working. These children are listening to me. The house is always messy. The kids are fighting. What is happening? Or maybe you're a, a student studying at uni. You think, I don't even know if I'm doing the right degree. Like you're getting to the end of your degree. Like, should I just quit? Like, am I in the right place? Is this what I want to do with the rest of my life? Should I be signing up for the masters after this? I've got, you've got no idea what you're supposed to do with your life. Or maybe you're a, a worker and the grind, the hustle of your nine to five, or more realistically, your you know your eight till seven, is draining. It's it's tiring, and your career isn't fulfilling, and you can't see the next steps. You're like, what am I doing with my life? Why is it that we feel like we're not flourishing? The life feels out of balance or out of keel, out of order. And so there's a whole bunch of solutions to that. Like you, we're told. Um, you just need a couple of life hacks, right? If you just nail a couple of life hacks, then things will get better. Like if you wake up at the same time every morning, if you just add a few vegetables to your diet, you know, like, and let's be fair, some life hacks like a brilliant, like small changes that have big impacts in our life and, 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 and good habits and patterns. We don't want to deny the power of that, but there's something about us that just kind of dry reaches at this idea that we're like computers, tweak a few inputs and the outputs change. We're not machines, we're humans. And we feel this. Every single day we're bombarded with versions of what the happy, the blessed, the fulfilling, the successful life looks like. Every day, our TVs, our, our, our phones, our social media feeds are giving us a version of the blessed and happy life. And the question is, how do we know what it is? Like, what, what's the benchmark? How do we know? Yeah, we're searching for a partner that um, completes us, for a career that's fulfilling, for holidays and experiences that blow our minds, for a, a circle of friends that are fun, living in a part of the city that's vibrant and happening with lots to do. But we just don't know whether or not we're killing it, whether or not our life is fulfilling or not. We have this nagging sense of, longing of real of, of wondering is this working how do we know what's the benchmark is the benchmark the instagram influencer like is is their life the benchmark is the benchmark the latest self-help guru who you've just read is the benchmark the you know the, what your psychologist is telling you is it your neighbor or your friend who just seems to have life all together like how do we how do we know which version of the blessed happy life is the right one well, as we flop open our Bibles to the middle of the book, we land at Psalm chapter 1. And the Psalms give us a version of the blessed, happy life. And it opens with a beatitude, a blessing. It says there in verse 1, blessed is the person who. Blessed is the person who. And that word there for blessed 
could be translated happy or fortunate or flourishing or fulfilled life. Happy doesn't quite capture it. It's not really any exact word that captures it, but blessed or happy or fortunate kind of gets to the point of what it means. Psalm 1 offers us a version of the blessed life, of the happy life, of a way of living that leads to flourishing and fruitfulness in our lives. And so if you want to know what the secret of the happy life is, well, here is the ancient and timeless wisdom of the psalmist. This is what it says in Psalm chapter 1. Blessed is the one who does not walk in step with the wicked or stand in the way of sinners, take a seat in the company of mockers, but whose delight is in the law of the Lord and who meditates on his law day and night. The happy life, the blessed life is this combination of embrace and resistance of things we say yes to and things we say no to. And here the psalmist is saying the blessed life is one of resistance of those ways and people and things that are opposed to God. And you notice there in the opening verse there, there is this progressive, this pattern of progressive stillness that occurs. There is walking in step and then standing in the way and then sitting in the seat of mockers. The counsel of the wicked there is, um, is, is a pattern of thinking. The way of sinners is a pattern of behavior. And then the seat of mockers is a pattern of identification, of belonging. And the psalmist says that the blessed person is one who does not think or behave or identify like those who are opposed to God. Now we see the same principle in the New Testament. The Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, 33, that bad company corrupts good character. If we want to be blessed, if we want to have a happy life, the blessed life, we need to ask ourselves the question, who is in our circle of influence? Who is shaping us? Who is making us who we are? This psalmist causes us to check our circle. Say, who is there? In his book, uh, Atomic Habits, James Clear writes um, that one of the most significant shaping things about people is not so much motivation and drive and their giftedness, but their environment, the people around them. And so chances are, if the people that you work with um, drink lots and party and you'll end up doing those things. The people that you work with are, um, you know, go to the gym and, uh, and run and exercise. And if it chances are, you'll be more likely to do those things. We are so much shaped by our environment, by the people around us. And Psalm 1 says, rather than letting others around shape you, the blessed person, the one who leads a fulfilled and happy life is the one who allows the word of God to shape them, the ways of God to form them and to influence them. You know the, um, the difference between a thermometer and a thermostat, right? A thermometer takes its temperature from the surrounding environment. It reads what the degrees are in its given context, in its environment. A thermostat, on the other hand, sets and regulates the temperature of the environment. And what the psalmist is saying here is be a thermostat, be a, an environmental regulator, like be the influencer. Don't allow the culture, the world around you to influence and shape you. The primary influence of our lives ought to be 
the word of God, the ways of the Lord. And so we need habits of prayer and meditation on the word and worship and stillness and silence and Sabbath. Now, I'm not saying that we need to eject from the world and reject culture altogether and not participate in it. We are called as followers of Jesus to a redemptive association with this world. That's what, that's what he means in Matthew 5 when he says, you are salt, you are light, you are, you are here as God's people, an outpost of his kingdom to impact the world, to be light in the darkness, to be salt that you would preserve and add flavor to life. We are called to redemptive association in this world, not just ejecting from it. We need to be the thermostat in our circle. So we are called, uh, the blessed life is a life that resists certain things, but it's also a life of embrace, a life that embraces certain things. Have a look there at what the psalmist says in verse 2. So, sorry, picking up at verse 1, he says, Blessed is the one who does not walk in step with the wicked or stand in the way of sinners, take or sit in the company of mockers, but whose delight is in the law of the Lord and who meditates on his law day and day. Now, that word law there is the word Torah, and it doesn't just mean the laws, right? It doesn't do the rules that are listed in the Bible. It probably is better um, to call it instruction or a way of living. I love the way that Eugene Peterson puts it. He says it, the law here is God's proven instruction for living. That is to say God's way, the best way. God's way is the best way. And in that instruction, the blessed life. The happy person delights. We see very similar things popping up in Psalm 119 and Psalm 19. In fact, it says in Psalm 19 verse 8 and verse 10, the precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. Or verse 10, more to be desired are they than gold, than much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and the drippings of honeycomb. The blessed person delights in and finds joy in the Word of God. It's not boring. It's not irrelevant. It's not collecting dust. It's life-giving. It's transformative. It's truth. It's timeless. And it, it is feeding faith in the person who is blessed. They delight in it. Secondly, they meditate in it. Naturally, if you delight in something, if there's joy in it, that leads to engagement. It leads to immersion. If you, if you delight in a relationship, you spend time with that person. If you delight in a hobby, you, you participate in that thing. Delight leads to immersion in the Word. And the blessed person meditates on the Word. It says there in verse 2, they meditated on it day and night. Now, that doesn't mean they meditate 24-7. They're, you know, they're... They're monastic. They just read the Bible all day, every day. That's not what it means. What it probably means is that they bookended their day with the Word. In the morning and the evening, they read the Word. Um, and it's funny, like church history has had a very strong pattern of people reading a psalm in the morning and the evening, every single day. as a bookend for your day. You begin in the Word and you finish in the Word. But they meditate. The blessed person meditates on the Word. Now, I think when we think of meditation, we think of much more of an Eastern version of meditation that's about emptying the mind and mindlessness. But Christian meditation is the exact opposite. It's actually about filling the mind 
and filling our souls with truth, with the word of God. And it actually means here to repeat or to even mutter under your breath. We're talking in the context of an illiterate, vastly illiterate society. They were to imprint the word and embed the word by repeating it, rehearsing it and muttering it and then recalling it throughout their day. And as the psalmist opens, Psalm chapter 1 opens, um, it acts as kind of like the gateway into the whole psalm. Psalm 1 and Psalm 2 are the introduction to the rest of the book, broken up into four, sorry, five separate books, book 1 to 5, Psalm 1 to 150, and Psalms 1 and 2 are the introduction to the book and a gateway. And what Psalm 1 tells us is this is how you read the rest of the book. You need to meditate on it. You need to receive this as instruction. You need to delight in this. Someone calls us to read these songs, these hymns and these prayers slowly, to meditate on them, to read thoughtfully, to read contemplatively, to slow our pace and to reread phrases and to allow the truth to soak into our heart and souls. I want to suggest that often when we feel that sense of life being out of balance or out of keel or frustrated or we're just not killing it, often it's because we have detached ourselves from our source. That we're trying to live our lives outside of the context of dependence on God and and drinking deeply of the scriptures and allowing God's ways and his word to shape us. We need a way of meditating. We need a way of going deep. And I want to suggest to you that there is, there's nothing that's been more powerful for me than the kind of like cheesy acronym. We're, we're so good at acronyms as Christians, but the, the Bible method, the acronym called SOAP. Now I realize that SOAP sounds you know so cheesy or REAP or whatever you want to call it. But the method for me, irrespective of how, how cheesy it is, actually has borne wonderful fruit in my life. And the way that SOAP works is it's an acronym of four things, scripture, observation, application, and prayer. And so I'll read a verse and, and a, uh, or a passage and a scripture will jump out to me and I zero in on that small piece of scripture and I want to meditate on it. So I make observations about it. I write down all of the things about that verse and what it means and what are the verses around it saying. Then I turn that not just into an intellectual exercise, but then how do I apply that to my life? How does it work out in my hands? And then turn it into a prayer and ask that God would help me to do that. I'm engaging my head and my heart and my hands in that process. It's a process of meditation. We are called to meditate, to go deep, to go slow, to, to read the scriptures thoughtfully. This isn't just sign up to a Bible reading plan, read, box tick, check, done. This is about allowing the truth to, to immerse ourselves in it, to allow it to seep into our bones and to shape us radically. The blessed person not only delights in the word, but they also meditate on it. And then the psalmist gives us this beautiful metaphor of what this blessed person's life looks like. He says this, in, in this very stark contrast between the righteous and the wicked, he says this in verse 3, the, the, that person is like a tree planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in season and whose leaf does not wither. Whatever they do 
prospers. This is a, a beautiful picture of a, a tree. I mean, you just imagine um, a landscape in the Australian outback with red dust plains as far as the eye can see, but where there is a course of water snaking its way through the landscape, what you will find are trees and greenery and shrubs planted there because they have a ready source of nourishment and fruit and water and sustenance in their life. They flourish, they thrive, and drought does not impact them. That's the picture. In our household, we are experts at killing plants. Tasha and I, I don't know what it is about us. Even plants that thrive on neglect die in our house. And if you walk through our house, all of our indoor plants are dying. Not like this amazing fiddly fig that's here. Our fiddly fig is lit, barely alive. And the picture here that the psalmist gives us is of a tree that is thriving. It endures. The, the, the season where there is no rain does not impact it. That is a picture of the blessed person. In contrast, the picture of the wicked is this in verse 4. The wicked are not so, but they are like chaff that the wind drives away. Now, chaff there is the husk of wheat. And in the process of harvesting, a farmer would take his freshly harvested grain up to his threshing house and on the top of a hill would throw his, um, his harvest in the air and the, the light husk or the chaff would get caught by the wind and blow away and the heavy grain would fall to the ground and be packaged and bagged. And the writer is saying that is the destiny of the wicked. The righteous, the blessed one who, who digs deep down into the word of God, they will thrive, but the wicked will be blown away. Now, as we read that, we think to ourselves, hang on a sec, that does not line up with my lived experience. Like as I look around, I think, well, what about all the Christians that are persecuted? Or what about all the people that get away with corruption and injustice? Like our world just does not operate like that. Good people get rewarded and bad people. It's not how it works. The reality is Psalm 1 falls into what we are called the wisdom psalms. It's not saying this is how life plays out in every instance. What Psalm 1 does is it pans back and it takes a look at humanity from a 30,000 foot view, from, from all of life. And it says the life that you live from beginning to end plays out like this. But the psalmist will also be really real. If we get to Psalm 73, for example, it's a psalm of lament that says, God, why is it that the wicked prosper and the righteous suffer? Like this just doesn't feel fair. So the psalmist, depending on their genre, will do different things. Psalm 1 is a wisdom psalm. It says this is the big picture of life. When you look at life with eternity in mind, this is how things play out. Psalm 73, that gets down into the nitty gritty detail of people's lives and the injustice and the mess and the brokenness of this world. And the psalmist offers his verdict here in verse 5. Therefore, the result, the consequences of these very two different versions of life is this. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. For the Lord watches over the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked leads to destruction. In the end, there are only two ways. There are only two versions of life. There are only two ways to live. And the psalmist here calls us, draws us in to living the blessed, happy life. But as we think about Psalm 1, you think that it's such an idealized picture. Really, the only person that would ever fit that picture 
is the prototype of Psalm 1, the Lord Jesus himself. He is the one who lived a truly blessed life. He is the one who lived in perfect connection with his Father. If you think of what he says in John 10, 30, he says, I and the Father are one. Or in John 4, he has this encounter with the Samaritan woman at the well and speaks of this source of living water. And then immediately afterwards, the disciples come to him and he speaks of this source of food and sustenance that's beyond the physical, the physical stuff. It's this spiritual reality. He says that, that I, have, I have things at my disposal. I have, I have resources at my disposal that go beyond what you can see, touch, taste, and feel. He is connected to the source of life himself. In Luke 4, we read of the account of Jesus who after his baptism and uh, the Spirit descending upon him, he is taken by the Spirit, led into the wilderness for 40 days where he fasts, goes without food and water. And on the, the last day, the enemy turns up to tempt him. And he tempts Jesus in much the same way that Israel's story it mirrors Israel's 40-year journey through the wilderness. And Jesus resists that temptation. He does not walk in the way of sin. He does not stand in the way of mockers. He does not sit in the seat. He he resists that by the word of God. He quotes back to the enemy. Man does not live on bread alone. Thou shall not test the Lord. And it's not so much that Jesus memorized them and quoted it back. It's that, that the word had so shaped Jesus that he was so... Um, connected to the Father, that his version of life was, was so driven by God's agenda that he was able to walk in line by the power of the Spirit in obedience with the Father. Even as we look at Psalm chapter 2, that second part of the introduction to the Psalms, we see this picture of the Messiah. The psalmist cries out, Why do the nations rage? Why do the rulers of this world plot against the Messiah and the Anointed One? And God scoffs at them. He laughs at them. And he says, kiss the son, lest he be angry with you. Bow the knee to the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. Kiss the palm of his hand. This is Jesus, the one who is to come. And Psalms draw us to put our hope in the promised Messiah. And we know who that Messiah is. It is Jesus who lived and died and rose again, who was promised to come back and make all things new. And he is the one who lived the life that we possibly couldn't live, the Psalm 1 life. He modeled it and he he died in our place for, for the punishment that we ought to have deserved was laid upon Jesus. And then he fills us with his spirit to allow us to live this, this way. And the question that we are left with is, do we believe it? This version of the blessed, happy life, do we believe this is true? Now, obviously, if you're a follower of Jesus, if you call yourself a Christian, you say, yes, of course I believe it. Uh, is our life shaped by the way of the Lord? Are we following Jesus, or are we influenced by the culture and the world around us? If we want to live the blessed, happy life, we need to live a life in the Spirit, rooted in the Word of God, following Jesus and living out the kingdom reality. And that begins as we both resist the ways of this world and embrace the ways and the Word of the Lord. I want to close with a, an incredible story of a friend of mine called Vuti 
Voti was um, my roommate, one of my, lived, lived right next door to me at Bible college when I was studying there. And uh, Voti was, uh, uh, grew up in uh, Phnom Penh in Cambodia during the Khmer Rouge. He was a, a street kid in gangs who went around doing like low level crime, uh, scraping through bins for food, living on the street. And one day someone gave him a Bible. And he opened the Bible and he saw the pages of the Bible made the perfect rolly paper for rolling tobacco cigarettes. And so Vuti would every day tear a page out of his Bible, roll his tobacco up, smoke it until he got to the very last page. And he thought to himself, well, I need to get another one of these books. And so he read the last page that was left in the book. He found out that this was about Jesus. And so he went to the local church and he asked if he could get another copy of the Bible fully intending to smoke his way through the, the, the Bible again. But this time, for whatever reason, he decided to read it. And he read the Word of God, and it radically transformed his life. When I met Vuti, he was studying a Bachelor of Theology in English, learning Greek and Hebrew in a second language, because his, his first language uh, was not English. And uh, he is now either the principal or a senior lecturer at Phnom Penh Bible School, training other pastors and leaders, all because the Word of God radically changed the direction, the course, and the way of his life. And I remember as I listened to Vuti's story, he said this beautiful line. He said, I once had the Word of God in my lungs, but now I have the Word of God in my heart. And God's Word has radically changed the direction and the course of his life. As we journey through the book of Psalms, this is an invitation for us to put our roots down, to be like the tree in Psalm 1, to read slowly, to be a people of meditation and contemplation and Bible delight, and to walk in the way of the Lord. Church, we love you. Hope this word blesses you. Cannot wait to walk through the rest of this series on Psalms. Let me pray for us as we head out to worship. Father God, we thank you that your word is good. It's true. It's living and active. And God, we long, we long to be people of Bible delight. We long to be people who are immersed in your word, that it would shape us, that it would form us more than anything else around us. God, we invite you by the power of your spirit to make us more like Jesus and transform us. We pray this in his strong name. And all of God's people said, Amen. Bless the church. See you soon.